When I was growing up, I lived with uh, my stepmom in the second half, kind of my growing up years, and there were five of us, and I did not understand her morning uh, refreshing routine when I was a kid, because I was a kid, and I was like, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, how do you need time to rest? But as I get older, and I only have two kids, I get it getting five kids out the door safely with their lunches and schedules and all that. And what she would do uh, after we were all at the door, and I realized this whenever I would have a dentist appointment or would stay home for some reason, what she would do is she'd get a Coca-Cola and she'd crack it open and pour it without ice into one of these uh, plastic circle cups that we had. And I remember as a kid thinking, that's weird. But whenever I hear the word refreshment, that's one of the first images that pops into my mind. I could see the little bubbles coming up. The, the, the cups held the 12 ounces easily, and so the, the line was down, but it would fizz a little. And now, if I want a Coke, I don't drink Coke very often, but if I do, um, I love having it that way. It tastes so refreshing. What we're going to see in Acts chapter 3 is uh, Peter and John go up to pray, and then they heal a man, and then people are so amazed by the healing um, there were Jesus heals a man through them, more specifically, uh, that Peter ends up preaching an impromptu sermon. And one of the ways that he makes the good news of Jesus Christ compelling is he describes it as refreshing to know that we're forgiven. In Acts chapter 2, and this will happen again in Acts chapter 4, there's a description of the church. And in the middle of it, it says, and many signs and wonders were happening in the early church. Um, that's in chapter 2, verse 43. And then an example of that happens immediately in Acts chapter 3. Some of us sang a song about this in Sunday school. Peter and John went up to pray. They met the man and said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you, which is pretty darn close to the text, by the way. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. And I can remember as a young man walking and leaping and putting my arms up, praise to God, around my Sunday school class. Acts chapter 3 says this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, looks very specific, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over 
and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's Peter's impromptu sermon at the end of Acts chapter 3. After he heals this man, we'll find out in Acts chapter 4 that the man was 40, which made the miracle harder to uh, ignore. So many things in this chapter. And yet, before we talk about the amazing things, that a man is healed in the way that Peter summarizes the gospel even as he's continuing to study and pray and ask the Lord to help him fully understand all that Jesus said about himself. I just want to point out that Peter and John were not planning to go up and preach a sermon or heal anyone. They were going up to pray. Peter, who was commissioned directly by Jesus and often has the leadership of the early church and certainly was one of the primary leaders of the disciples, needed to pray. John, who the night before uh, Jesus went to his crucifixion, laid against Jesus' chest. That is how close they were. John, the one whom Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, Woman, behold your son, to John. And to John, man, behold your mother. Because even as allegiance to Jesus transcends everything else, the family still mattered. Both of these men who knew Jesus so well, who were so confident in their calling, who one chapter before had flames of fire above their head, the Holy Spirit's tangible and visible presence. All believers have the Holy Spirit, but those men and others with them had tongues of fire above their heads. They were so confident in their call, still needed to pray. How much more do you and I need to pray and learn to pray? I would encourage, beginning with the Lord's Prayer, if you're not comfortable with prayer, and learning to pray it in your own words. Jesus said, pray this way. So learn to, to expand um, the clauses of the prayer that Jesus gives. Praying the Psalms is wonderful. There are other ways of prayer. One of my favorite things about the barn is that it has a good bit of history. 
And that includes a number of men and women who uh, have been prayer, men and women of prayer for a long time, and are men and women who are willing and able to mentor others in prayer and to teach them by listening together to the Lord, by opening the scriptures together. That's one of the dominant purposes of our retreat center. If you'd like more information, it's on our website. I'd be happy to introduce you to any of the people who would listen to you, pray with you, pray for you, open the scriptures with you. But it's a gentle reminder, and it happens throughout the narratives and the letters and other aspects of scripture that we need to learn the joy of experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit that comes through prayer. We need to learn to pray the way that Jesus said. We need to learn to enjoy the intimacy and the peace of mind that comes with it. So Peter and John were actually leaving the house for prayer, but they end up on a healing detour where a man stops them and they turn and they face him. And we don't know what's going on in Peter's head. We don't know what's going on in John's head, who doesn't talk. Uh, he, I believe he talks in Acts chapter 4 when they're explaining themselves to the councils. We don't know what happened. We don't know what it was like. In verse 7 it says, And he took him by the right hand, I really appreciate Luke's specificity, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Was there a pause? After Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. I wonder if anybody's stopping to watch. I wonder if Peter spoke loudly. Is John like doing crowd control? Was there a pause between verse 6 and verse 7? Or did Peter just know exactly what was about to happen? So he took him and pulled him up. And Luke says, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Were they not strong until Peter pulled him up? Did the Holy Spirit help Peter pull him up? Peter was a fisherman. He was certainly strong enough to help a man up, but we just don't exactly know. And what's happening here is the same thing that happened throughout the Gospels. The miracles that happen in Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament are there to support the message of the good news. That God loves his people. That the world is a broken place and so there must be sacrifice. But it is by grace that men and women return to a relationship with God. And all of the miracles of Jesus, and especially Jesus, and certainly in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, have that purpose. Which is why the, one of the strangest passages um, on its face in the New Testament was when Jesus... It said he could do no great work there after healing a number of men and women, and that's because healing was not uh, his primary goal. Although he loved to do it, it was a sign of his true heart, the world as it should be, but mostly the purpose of the healings are to support the message of the gospel. So that's why the Holy Spirit encouraged Peter and John to do this and gave them the power to do it. When the man starts leaping, this is in fulfillment to a prophecy. The pro there, there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, they're quoted in Acts chapter 4 when the believers are together praising and, and praying. Some of them about Jesus are quoted. Um, but in Isaiah chapter 35 verse 6, it says a sign of the days of the Lord will be that 
healed people will leap and praise. That's in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. But what I love about the healing detour that they take, in addition to the fact that a man is healed and clearly is ready to start following Jesus, he just doesn't leave Peter and John's side. Very different. There are other stories of healings where people are just like, great, see ya, thanks. Um, this guy won't leave. There's so many wonderful little aspects to the story. But one is that this wasn't the plan. This wasn't the plan for the day. You know, I think if they had known, maybe they'd have been like, sweet, what a great plan. But Peter and John did not set out to convert more people that day to being followers of the way, which is what they they began to be called in uh, the book of Acts in the time just after Jesus ascended into heaven. They were going up to pray. They wanted to know more about their calling. They wanted to experience the peace and intimacy of God that happened with prayer. They probably wanted to chat a little bit, just the two of them. You know, where's James or any of the other disciples? And what happened instead was uh, up to the Holy Spirit. In my opinion, this is one of the greatest proofs of the truthfulness of Christianity, that the plan was never clear, and it was never man-made. And when it was, it usually got shattered through either internal strife, the church uh, will begin fighting at the end of chapter 4, really, in the beginning of chapter 5 of the book of Acts, and it will continue until Jesus returns. The persecution of the church begins at the end of at the beginning of chapter 4, when Peter and John are arrested for healing this man. Um, and yet, the church continues to grow. And the reason is because the message is true. It's not because the disciples got together and figured out how to start a global nonprofit in order to exert control over people. 19th century philosophers made that criticism of Christianity. The reason that Peter and John were successful was because of the Holy Spirit's movement in their life. And they were faithful when and where they found themselves and with the people they found themselves around, but it wasn't the plan. And I think that's really important because it shows us the truthfulness of Luke's account. For those considering the gospel of Jesus, through careful words, I might help you consider that supernatural things could happen and that perhaps we are one of the first generations in the history, about the last hundred years, the first generations in history where people didn't just assume that there's more to the world than we can see and understand. There are other arguments for that. I cannot in any way prove those things to another human. But what I can tell you is that repeatedly, the book of Luke is verifiable and evidentially credible, which means that this story is interesting in its imperfection, in its lack of a climax, in its lack of, an, of a written plan of, of any of these men or women knowing exactly what was happening. Most of them thought, among other reasons, that their work wouldn't last because Jesus was going to return quite soon, and they thought that for good reason. But the point is that this was not Peter and John's plan, either to preach a sermon or to heal a man. They were just going to pray. And the humanity of the text, combined with the evidential verifiableness of it, I think is very compelling in our search for truth and our understanding that this is indeed the good news of Jesus. But Peter does preach a sermon. He preaches that faith in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth brings 
refreshment, which is daily enjoyment of the fact that we are forgiven people. The Bible is clear. Peter uses the word uh, wicked to describe our natural state in verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. His sermon is about the daily joy of being in Christ, describes it as refreshment. His sermon is about being saved, being forgiven by Jesus Christ. His sermon is about how we are still waiting for the restoration. He says in verse 21, whom heaven must receive, since Jesus is sending in heaven, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the good news of Jesus is incredible that we're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And yet, the second that we trust Christ, very little about our exterior life is different. Our internal life is radically changed eternally. And that's one of the reasons that Peter mentions that Jesus will come back and restore all things. One of the things I like about Acts is the sermons not only are impromptu in various settings, but they're also not incredibly theologically developed. And the reason is the disciples still needed to study. They were taking times of prayer and asking the Lord things. They didn't know how to run the church yet, but more importantly, especially to the apostles, was going back through the Old Testament and understanding it as fully as they could. They knew it very, very well, but understanding it as fully as they could in light of the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. So in the book of Romans and in the book of Hebrews is a very developed theology. The book of Hebrews uh, speaks about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and how Jesus is the perfection of those things. The book of Romans takes us through the entire redemptive story, creation and fall, redemption, and doesn't talk a lot about recreation at the end, but talks a lot about what we do. Chapters 12 through 16 are largely about what we do in light of the good news of Jesus. But the, in Acts chapter 3, this is not a very developed theology, both because it's impromptu and because the disciples are only days, weeks away, max, from Jesus ascending into heaven. But Peter still makes a lot of compelling points. And one of the things that I want to point out, in chapter 2 this happened also, Peter says some things that sound harsh to us about how the Jews killed Jesus. And every time he does it, it's both because of a historical marker, it's also because it happened, but he doesn't blame them in the sense that they did something meditated and evil that there's no healing from. He's saying it as a way of pointing out the brokenness of humanity, that this incredibly just Roman government and incredibly just Jewish faith condemned an innocent man. And they were all part of that. One of the hardest things to swallow, especially in the 21st century, about Christianity is it says that we're born into a world broken, and we can do nothing about that except place our faith in Jesus and enjoy the restoration he purchased for us on the cross. And so Peter talks about the fulfillment of Jesus as the, as the new covenant. God makes covenants with his people repeatedly in the Old Testament. And all of those covenants still exist. Um, he has always kept his end of the bargain. 
we have pretty much always failed at ours. We made a covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and the, and the nation of Israel freed from slavery, with David, and then the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And, and Peter is saying this is the new covenant that was spoken about. It is faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. I'm in verse 16. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So this faith is what he's encouraging. And the reason he's saying, repent. Enjoy the refreshment of Jesus. Repent. Enjoy the forgiveness of Jesus. Repent and learn to be a blessing to all people, which was the promise to Abraham. And then to Moses also and to David was that the nation of Israel was to bless the entire world by teaching them about knowledge of God. And the most perfect expression of that covenant is in faith in Jesus of Nazareth. So Peter preaches a sermon about the hope of the name of Jesus. That hope is that we can live lives of repentance, which sounds heavy, right? Unless we're honest about the alternative. What's the alternative to living a life of repentance? It's one where we either know everything and everyone else is wrong, where we try and live a mistake-free life, try and be right all the time, which is one kind of oppression, or we just do whatever feels good in the moment. Those are the two potential alternatives to a life of repentance. Assuming that we make mistakes, even with knowledge. Assuming that we hurt people, sometimes even on purpose. What are the options? Some kind of perfectionistic life or just whatever feels good, come what may. Peter says the hope of the name of Jesus is an alternative to that. Where we place our faith in him, where we tell him that we trust him with our heart, with our decisions, and we follow him. We learn to be a blessing. We learn how to glorify and enjoy God and to worship him and to love neighbor. I think on our best days, we long to be a blessing, as Peter describes in verse 25 and 26. Quoting the covenant God made with Abraham, but also the cry of our hearts. We long to be a blessing. We long to understand our work and the people in our lives by learning to love them, even those perhaps that we don't like. And Peter is incredibly clear that the way to do this is through faith in the name of Jesus, where we call him Lord and Savior, where we renounce trying to save ourselves, either through just choices that feel good or trying to whip ourselves into shape in some fashion. Instead, we say, I know I can't whip myself into shape. I know that there isn't enough pleasure in the world to save me. And so instead, I turn to you, Jesus. I repent from trying to save myself through whatever means we have chosen. And I put my faith in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, Lord of Nazareth, Lord, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you bless us with a sense of all that you're doing in our lives? Would you help us know that you love us as a good father and you've never been impatient with us? 
would you help us daily and moment by moment be thankful for the work of Christ, purchasing righteousness and joy and peace for us. And would you assure our hearts that we are yours and you are ours through the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in us. Amen.